let me begin by reading this core value. Uh, we value belief in the authority, power, and inerrancy of the Bible as God's written word for men and women to teach, correct, and train them in righteousness. And if you'll see, if you've got your, um, if you've got your uh, handout, you'll see that just like the previous core values and the ones we'll discuss in the future, there's scripture that goes with that. And you know, I want us to understand that, that that's, that's part of what this core value is, is that we, as we look at what are the core values of the church, what is it that we hold to be true, we pull those from Scripture. We don't pull those from, you know, the Baptist denomination. We don't pull that from what the church down the road does. We don't pull that from what we just got together and thought that would be really cool. But it comes from the Scripture, and the reason it comes from the Scripture is because we believe in the authority, power, and inerrancy of Scripture. And so I want us to think about how this, this concept affects us, how authority of the Scripture, how the Scripture having power, and how the Scripture being errant, inerrant affects us. And so uh, in, your, in your notes, um, I kind of summarized it this way. This is kind of what we're going to look at today. For something to be truly transformative, it must have three traits. It must be sourced in truth to transform accurately. So if it's not truthful, it might transform us, but it might transform us into deception, into a misguidedness. But for something to truly transform us, it must be sourced in truth or it won't transform us ac accurately. Uh, it must have the power to actually bring about transformation. You know, I could, somebody could bring me, hey, here's a mantra. And if you say this mantra, good things will come. But that mantra doesn't have power. And I can, I can say it all I want but it doesn't have the power to actually bring transformation. Then the third thing is it must have the authority to actually initiate and direct the transformation. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's say we want to effectively control traffic. Okay? For something to effectively control traffic, it has to have the authority to control traffic, the power to control traffic, and it would have to be in the right place or it'd have to be accurately placed to properly control traffic. So let's say a police officer has authority to control traffic and he can stand in an intersection and he can tell people to come and can people to stop. But if somebody decides they're not going to abide by that and just decide to blow past him, he doesn't have the physical power to stand in front of their car and stop it from moving. Or let's say the police officer shows up at the wrong intersection and he's direct, directing traffic. He has the, the, the authority to direct traffic, but he's in the wrong place. He's not doing it efficiently. But let's think of something that does have the power to direct traffic. Let's say we put a barricade in the middle of the road. Well, if I put the barricade in the middle of the road, I have the power to stop traffic. But I don't have the authority, and if somebody finds out I did it, I'm going to get in trouble. Or... Let's say the police who do have the authority to do that, they put a barricade on a road, but they put it on the wrong road. 
Again, it's ineffective. It is stopping traffic, but it's stopping at the wrong place. Let's, let's, let's try a different example. Let's say that my boss comes to me and tells me he's going to give me a $1,000 check because I did such a good job. Thank you. But if, if, I, if he is trustworthy, like I know he doesn't lie to me about things like that, and I know that he has the authority to put in the paperwork to get me a check, and he has the power to ensure that HR follows through and cuts me a check, then I'm going to wait expectantly for that $1,000 check. But if I work for someone who is not trustworthy, they, ha- they have made me promises before that they didn't uh, fulfill, or I, I, my, I know that my boss isn't at a high enough level that he can't, he doesn't have the authority to, to make uh, that suggestion, or he doesn't have the power to ensure that it's done, then I'm probably just going to ignore the fact that he said that to me. I'm just going to go on with my life, and I'm never going to expect that. Um, so uh, this is the same way it affects the way we look at Scripture. If we do not take the word as trustworthy, if we don't see it as powerful, if we don't see it as inerrant, if we don't see it as the authority uh, to change our word, um, uh, to change our lives, then, then we're going to ignore it. We're going to treat it with less value. We're not gonna, we're not gonna wait expectantly for the transformation of being in the Word to affect. It's gonna affect how we, uh, how much time we spend in the Word. Um, it's gonna affect how much, um, you know, how much weight we put into what we read. Uh, let's think about, for example, if I, if I had a book in my hand and it was like, this is the way you make a million dollars in one year. And everybody who read that book and followed what it said made a million dollars, then everybody who saw a person type, they would open up that book and they would read it and they would apply their life because they want the million dollars. We state as Christians, that we believe the Bible is the Word of God. We, we state that we believe that, that God, as, as in the verse that, that Eric read to us, that it was God-breathed, it was given by, under the inspiration of God, that these are the words of God, this is the thoughts of God given to us. We say that, but does our amount of time in the Word show that we believe that? Does our amount of applying the word to our lives really show that? And so I think that's that's why we're going to spend some time this morning just reminding ourselves that we have access to words given to us by God that are trustworthy, that are powerful, and that have authority over our lives and really authority over any other authority that we have. See, if we, if we don't see this word as powerful, we will ignore it. If we do not see the word as authoritative, we will take it as a suggestion to be weighed rather than God-breathed truth to be obeyed and applied. So let's begin by looking at the inerrancy of Scripture. I'll take us back to, to the verse that Eric read to us. All Scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. All Scripture is breathed out by God. So in your notes, the first reason we can trust the Scripture is because we can trust God. If if God is the author and we trust God, then we should trust His Word. If, if He breathed out the Scripture, if He inspired the writings, if He led each of the authors to write and record His very thoughts, to record the act, His very actions throughout history, the way He moved through and amongst His people, as it recorded the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ, if God ordained it, if we believe that God ordained it, the trustworthiness of the Scripture, our view of the trustworthiness of Scripture will be in proportion to our view of the trustworthiness of God. So let's ask ourselves, what does the Word say about the trustworthiness of God? Second Samuel 7.27 says this, For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true. And you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and your blessings, and with your blessings shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Why did Samuel have courage? Because God's words are true. And because God's words are true, he trusted in God's promise. And so similarly, as we see the trustworthiness of God, we will see the trustworthiness of his words. And, and I, I want to take a moment and clarify, and this is this whole section about the trustworthiness of Scripture, and, and, and we're going to move into in a minute about where we got the, the, the Scriptures. But that's like, a, that's like a whole two-hour sermon all to itself. So, but I do want to clarify, when we talk about the inerrancy of Scripture, we talk about Scripture as it was originally written, as given by God, in context. So... If somebody takes Scripture out of context, the Scripture in context is inerrant, but their application out of context is not. If so, if someone tries to equate a certain translation as inerrant, they're stepping out of line. I actually saw a thing this week that scared the heck out of me. I saw a guy... Uh, showed up on my Instagram, and it was a clip of him preaching, and he was talking about the inerrancy of the King James Version Bible. And if any of y'all uh, like the King James Version Bible, this is not a slight on that. It's a slight on this guy. But his words is, this is the inerrant word of God, and if it disagrees with the original Greek, we use the King James Version to rebuke the original Greek. That That's not the inerrancy of Scripture. So I just I just want to be clear that we talk about the words as given by God recorded in context. John 17, 13 says this, But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in them. 
I have given them your word. This is Jesus talking to God. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Endorsements from Jesus are always good. Psalm 12, 6, the psalmist says, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. Again, the psalmist says in 119, 142, Your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. I actually don't think that verse number is right. I think I put it wrong in my notes. So be good Bereans and check me on that. Uh, Psalm 119, 160, the sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Samuel, the psalmist, Jesus, all testify to God's words being true. And there begins the strong foundation we are going to lay for trusting in the inerrancy of the word of God. But just like we can trust in the word because we trust God, we can trust the scripture because Jesus trusted the scripture. Now, at the time of Jesus, there was an accepted canon. It was what we call the Old Testament now. And it was put under the category of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. The Hebrews called it the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the books written by Moses, the Kekubim, I'm not going to promise I pronounced that right, which were the writings that included the Psalms and the poetry, and then the Nabiam, which was the prophets that included the writings of the major prophets, the minor prophets, and the historical books. And, and this accepted canon is what Jesus referred to when he talked to the strangers on the road to Emmaus in Luke chapter 24. If you'll remember, Jesus had been crucified. A lot of people uh, were scattered. They were in fear. They were in anxiety. And Jesus has been resurrected, but you know people you know, weren't aware of it yet. And he comes across some people on the road to Emmaus, and he asks them why they're downcast, and they kind of, you know, push back at him like, where have you been? Do you not know what has been going on in the world? And in verse 25, he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. So Jesus, on the road to Emmaus, used the accepted canon of his time he didn't go, it doesn't say he used Moses and the prophets except for the book of so-and-so. But it, it refers generally to the accepted canon at the time. Jesus explicitly quoted the Old Testament 78 times across the four Gospels. At no point did Jesus correct the canon that was accepted at his time. But not only did Jesus 
trust the scripture and his references when he was teaching, but he also did in his spiritual combat with Satan. When he was tempted in the wilderness, we see that in, in Matthew 4, when Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Jesus didn't answer, hey, dude, I've not eaten for 40 days. If I was to put bread in my stomach right now, it would, it would explode my contracted stomach and physically kill me. He didn't go, oh, you know, this would be unwise or, you know, I'm, I'm doing my, my spiritual fasting thing now. No, he responded with the word of God. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And when the tempter said to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from the top, from the pinnacle of the temple because he will command his angels concerning you. And they will bear you up, lest your foot strike a stone. Jesus didn't go, you know what? I don't have anything to prove. I'm not jumping off this building because I don't want to go splat. I don't want to, you know. He, he didn't say that. He said to him, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and said, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus didn't go, hey, man. Do you not realize that all authority has been given to me? I'm going to lay out these next three years, and at the end of these three years, regardless of what you do, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will confess. No. He said to him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him. So that's the next layer of our foundation. Not only is the word trustworthy because God is trustworthy, the word is trustworthy because Jesus endorsed it as trustworthy. But thirdly, we can trust the Scripture because the apostles trusted the Scripture. 1 Timothy 5.18 For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out grain and, and the laborer deserves its wages. Here we have Paul quoting two things. You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. That's from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. Then in the exact same context, he says, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, if you have a red-letter Bible, what Paul said right there should be in red letters in your Bible because that is Jesus speaking in Luke chapter 10. So here we have... Paul putting the writings of Luke in the same sentence as Deuteronomy. 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul tells Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. When Timothy was a child, what would he have learned and firmly believed? The Old Testament canon that we talked about, the Torah, the, the prophets the Psalms, and the other writings. 2 Timothy 3.16-17, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Paul doesn't say, like, some of the Scripture. 2 Peter 
3.16, Paul does another one of those things where he refers to one of the apostles. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these manners. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scripture. And so here again is an example of Peter putting the teachings of Paul in the same category as the scriptures. The New Testament quotes hundreds of Old Testament passages. Paul quotes Luke, Peter quotes Paul, everybody quotes Christ. And then here's one other piece to the foundation. So we have the foundation of the Scripture is trustworthy because God is trustworthy. The Scripture is trustworthy because Jesus endorsed it. We have the Scripture is trustworthy because the apostles trusted it. Here's the fourth one. We can trust the Scripture because the early church trusted the Scripture. I am, like I said, I'm going to try to put like a two-hour... Uh, class on how we got the Bible into like five minutes. So if you want more information on this, you want to nerd out, let me know. Um, but here's just a quick look. So how did we, how did we get the Bible that you have now? Where did these 66 books come from? Um, you know, why don't we have the Apocrypha like the Catholic Church does? Why don't we use these, uh, side texts like, the Seventh-day Adventists do, or, you know, any of these other groups. Why these 66 books in, in the Bible that you have right now? So the early church got together because there was question about, okay, which, which scriptures are authoritative. There was even, um, and his name is escaping me right now, and I didn't put it in my nose, but there was uh, one of the leaders... Uh, actually, he didn't like Jewish people, so he said you have to remove every uh, book from what was the accepted canon at the time uh, that was positive to Jewish people. And so you can imagine that left like a couple of books that didn't explicitly, were not explicitly pro-Jewish. So uh, in about 400 AD, uh, the church got together in Carthage, and they said, okay, we need to determine what is the right and accepted canon? And so they basically had four questions. The first one was, is it authoritative? And we're going to talk about authority here in a few minutes, but is it authoritative? Is the book, uh, is its writing, does it come with authority? Uh, if you'll notice, the books we have in the Bible uh, are not like uh, Isaiah said, hey, I kind of had this feeling, I woke up, and I just, I felt like I had this kind of impression that maybe this might apply to you guys, um, and so I'm going to just tell you what it is, and then, you know, you can kind of weigh it and let me know. Now, when Isaiah spoke, he said, thus saith the Lord. And we see that again and again and again in Scripture. Either the author speaks, the Lord told me to say, thus saith the Lord, or it was an established, like, apostle, like they knew that they had authority because they had been face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ. So the, the first thing was, is the book authoritative? 
The second question I kind of lead it, led into that at the end of the last thing is, what was the authorship? Was the author a known or recognized prophet? Was the author a known or recognized apostle? Is it someone that was substantiated by the spiritual community of their time? If not, was he endorsed by somebody else? For example, Luke wasn't an apostle. He was a Gentile doctor, but Paul quotes Luke. Paul endorses him. Mark was not an original apostle, but he had a relationship with Peter. And, and basically, the, the book of Mark is Mark telling, telling what Peter said. Um, so, so Mark carries the endorsement of Peter. The third question they asked is, does it actually have life-changing uh, dynamic truth? Does it edify? Does it have correct doctrine? Does the truth as applied in 1000 BC, does it apply in 1000 AD? You know, uh, one, one, one of the most timeless classics of television is the Andy Griffith Show. Every generation has loved the Andy Griffith Show. And there actually are people who study why the Andy Griffith Show is so timeless. And as a matter of fact, when I, I don't know if they still do, but when I was at UAB, they taught a class, and my roommate, who was a big Andy Griffith fan, actually took this class. But there was actually a full credit class you could take at UAB on why Andy Griffith was a timeless show. And there's really two reasons. Number one, there was nothing in the, if you go back and watch it, there's nothing in that show other than the fact that it's a black and white, and if you want to go to the styles of cars they drove. But there is never anything in the show that establishes the time. There's nothing that says, hey, this show took place in, you know, World War II or in the Great Depression or, you know, whenever. The second thing is, there was always an, I hate to use the word absolute, there was always a timeless moral shared in the show. It, it was not a moral that applied to the politics of the time. It wasn't a moral that applied to, you know, the general consensus of the time. They were timeless morals about, you know. So, so I'll say all that to say this. The scripture and Andy Griffith's show are not the same. But what they looked at is like, does it have life-changing truth? And does the life-changing truth depend on the time it was given? And they, and they kind of look like, well, this, this was written a thousand years ago, but this is still true today. The fourth is this. Was it already accepted? Had the churches taken it in? Had they circulated? Had they read it? Had they quoted from it? Had the early church fathers quoted from it? And, you know, like I said, the, 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 the New Testament quotes hundreds of passages from the Old Testament. And the historian Josephus, again, confirms for us, what the accepted canon at that time would have been. Uh, Paul quotes Luke. Peter quotes Paul. And again, they all quote Christ. The Bible in and of itself, if you count it down or count it up, contains approximately 63,779 cross-references to itself. So let's look at this dynamic truth that I talked about a minute ago. We have, we have scriptures that span centuries in authors, authorship. They had dozens upon dozens of authors 
who lived across a wide range of time, cultures, and geography. And while speaking on many controversial topics, they had a consistent message. Okay, 66 books across thousands of years, dozens of authors, dozens of cultures, multiple languages, has a consistent message. Okay, let's just take, for example, if we wanted to take medical books of the last 150 years, if we said, let's see how timeless the medical books of the last 150 years were, we would have concepts from lobotomies to leeches and from cannibalism to cannabis. There is no cohesion or agreement along a, that much period of time across cultures. I mean, we even look at nutrition today. You know, this is one thing that drives me crazy. If you buy name brand products in America, and you go buy that exact same name brand product in Europe, and you look at the ingredients on the back, there's about 30 less ingredients that will be in the products in Europe than are here because their health experts say, all of this stuff is bad for you. Yes, it is. Our medical experts say, you're good to go. But, but we see a consistency across the scripture. And by, by the way, that is no knock on medicine. My point just is, is that medicine, lots of, I mean, there's, there's timeless truths in medicine, there's timeless truths in science, but there are a lot of things that as we get smarter and we experiment, we just learn changes, but we don't see that with scripture. The, the, the Bible is unique in the fact that you have such diversity, yet such unity on the subjects that are written about. So, so we've talked about the trustworthiness of scripture, but in addition to that, we don't only need the book to be trustworthy, we need it to carry with it the power to transform us. So there's a couple of areas that we're going to look at, at the power of the scripture. Uh, listen to how the author of Hebrews describes the word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to division the soul and of the spirit and of joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Mm. That is a powerful, powerful picture. And so of the, and, and I probably could have done a list of a bunch, a bunch of things, but these are the three things that stood out to me. This is not a comprehensive, all-inclusive list. But the scripture carries the power of God for salvation. That's in your notes. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and to the Greek. And then verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. There's a couple things I want to mention here. And my top two pet peeves, one of them is uh, preach the gospel, use words as necessary. Uh, that is attributed to the St. Francis of Assisi. I don't think he said it. If he did, he was a sissy. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but like people attribute to him, but we don't really think he said it. But the, but 
let me just say this. The word carries power. It doesn't, it doesn't say the gospel is a channel of the power of God for salvation. It doesn't say it's a vessel of the power of God. It's an option for the power. It, it is the, literally the power of God for salvation. Words matter. When Jesus shared the gospel, he used words. When Paul shared the gospel, he used words. And the words they used were the words of God. You know, people can be nice and not have a relationship with God. People can be generous and not have a nice relationship with God. It's the gospel that points us to salvation. I will say something else here. I have, uh, I have a couple of friends. They have a very, um, a very popular po- apologetics, uh, show that they do on YouTube. And we kind of, I kind of got in a discussion with them one time because in one of their episodes, they were talking about the power of apologetics. And they said, you know, one of the main reasons we use apologetics is because if you just start quoting scripture to people, uh, it doesn't mean anything to them. And so, you know, and look, I think there is a place for apologetics. I went to, uh, when I was in high school and college, I went to an uh, apologetics church. Um, and the pastor was really good about, as he was talking about the gospel, he would work in, like, as scripture pointed out, he would point like, oh, here's a medical fact in the Bible, like, we're talking about leprosy, because here's something we did in, uh, that, that were, they were doing in the time of Moses, that, like, we didn't even discover till, like, the 1950s. Or we didn't start doing it in modern practices. And, and so he was good about interweaving, uh, apologetics, science, mathematics, uh, medicine, uh, in with as he was teaching the scriptures, but he never neglected the scriptures for that. And and my kind of point to them was, I was like, I, I understand there's a place for apologetics, but there's not a place for apologetics in the absence of the scripture because it apologetics isn't going to save anybody. Convincing somebody that the earth is not the center of the universe or it's round or, you know, whatever isn't going to lead somebody to salvation. It might lead them to, okay, I, you know, the Bible's got some facts in it. Well, my history book's got some facts in it too. But but what you have to weigh there is it's the words of God, it's the scripture, it's the, the gospel of Jesus Christ that, that has the power to bring people to salvation. That's where there's another apologetics guy that I love to watch on YouTube. His name's Cliff. I don't know what his last name is. But he goes to universities and he is really good about when people come and ask him questions, because they'll ask him hard questions about history, about philosophy, about science. And like, dude's super smart. But what's awesome is, is he starts addressing their arguments in science or, or history or mathematics or philosophy. He always brings it back to the scripture because the science and the mathematics are going to win the arguments, the scripture is going to win the hearts. And so let us remember that is the power, one of the powers is it leads to salvation. And similar to salvation, uh, scripture carries with it the power of transformation. So let's look at what what we see in our verse for today, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. So as I understand the scripture is God breathed, and I see that it's profitable to set good doctrine and to correct bad doctrine and to correct incorrect behavior and to train in righteous behavior, then the man of God becomes complete 
and equipped for every good work. There's that transformative part of the scripture. We see again in, in other scripture, and, and this is one that I, I know the men hear me probably bring up about every other uh, men's ministry, but I mean, this is just something that jumped out at me so much in our Colossians study, but it's a, yet another picture of increasing the knowledge and understanding of God and His Word and His will brings about transformation. Colossians 1.19, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, okay? Then what's the result? so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and then again, increasing in the knowledge of God. And then what happens? It's, it's this cycle thing. Increased in knowledge, endurance, increased in knowledge again, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transformed us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. And so we grow in the knowledge of the Lord and the knowledge of his word and the knowledge of his will. Then we walk uh, in, in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And then we grow more in the knowledge of his will and his word. And then we have endurance and joy and patience. And 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 and, and it, 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 it brings about us thanks and and forgiveness. I mean, worship, I don't know what I said. Maybe it brings out forgiveness too. Uh, well, it does. Joshua 1.8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to what is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. And so again... Meditating on the word, bringing about transformation in our lives. And then I'm going to throw this verse out here. Part of one of the examples of transformation is it brings the hopeless to finding hope. Romans 15, 4 says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement of the what? The scriptures we might have hope. And so... We have the power of salvation. We have the power of transformation. And then the third thing is, uh, we ha Scripture carries with it the power of God for completion. We're going to jump into Isaiah 55, starting at verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, and giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my words be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I propose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. God's word is not empty. It is not frail. It is not ineffective. When the word of God goes out, it brings about God's will. All right. So we talked about the inerrancy of Scripture, the trustworthiness of it. 
We've talked about the power of it, and now I want to talk about the authority of Scripture. Because this is the place I think we get in a lot of trouble. In our flesh, either in a desire to please ourselves, we change uh, what, what level of authority we think the Word has in our lives, or even in a legalistic way, in a fleshly attempt to please the Lord, we judge the weight of the Word through lenses of our convictions, our preferences, our pleasures, and our politics. We also mistakenly mix the authority of the Scripture, the authority of God, with the authority of other people and organizations. What we're going to look at here is God and His Word has authority over all these things. It has authority over our convictions. It has authority over our preferences. It has authority over any other authority. So the first thing I want to look at here, Scripture has authority, in your notes, authority over man's religion. In Mark 1, 21 through 22, it says to this, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he, he being Jesus, entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. I shared with the men last Wednesday that we were together. When I was younger, when I read this, like, it just struck me as, oh, you know, he taught as one with authority. Like, I mean, it was his demeanor. It was his voice. It was his projection. Cause like, I think like, like we just got a new boss at work, like a new big boss. Like I have my same boss boss, but his boss and he's ex military. And, um, look, when he walks into the room, before he has said a word, everybody knows he's in charge of that room. Like it, the way he carries himself, the way he stands, uh, everything about him says, I'm in charge in this room. And then when he starts speaking, you're like, oh yeah, this is the boss. And that's kind of the way I view that. I was like, oh, you know, all these, uh, you know, wishy-washy, uh, Pharisees that had been in the synagogue and, and teaching, they were kind of, and then Jesus came in, they're like, oh yeah, wow. You know, he's, but, but what I realized is, what it really meant is he spoke with authority. And, and I've got lots of examples here, and I'm, I'm gonna kind of hit at each one of them, but take for example what Jesus did on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, you have heard that it was said, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable in judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable of the hell of fire. When the rabbis taught, they said you heard. But when Jesus talked, he said, I say. Yeah, I say, and I am. Verse 27, you have heard. Verse 28, but I say. Verse 31, it was also said. Verse 32, but I say. Verse 33, again, you have heard. Verse 34, but I say. 38, you have heard. 39, I say. 43, you have heard. Verse 44, I say. 
Jesus spoke with authority because he had the authority of the word. Now, what happens is we sometimes, we sometimes mistake authority because we don't trust the authority of God and we don't trust the authority of his word. And so what happens right now, uh, the Methodist church is going through a church split. Half the churches of the Methodist church have left the United Methodist Church. So by definition, they are the disunited Methodist Church. But half the churches have left because the General, General Assembly or General Council or whatever you want to call them, they got together and decided they were going to start voting on what sins were sins and what sins weren't sins because of their opinions and their politics. And what they didn't do is say, let's go to the Scripture and see what the Scripture says. And so I envision this is the way it should have happened. The assembly got together, they voted to change what was sin or not, and God vetoed it. But I think in their mind, they overrode the veto. And, and, and they will answer for that. Just like any of us who have the opportunity to teach or lead, we will be held accountable for when we have led in error or mistake. But, but, that's man's religion deciding what's right and wrong. And if we trust in the authority of Scripture, if we trust in the authority, then the Baptist church isn't going to come tell Agape what's right and wrong. You know, the economical council is not going to tell us what's right and wrong because we're going to look to the Scripture for what's right and wrong, what's good doctrine, what's bad doctrine, what's good behavior, what's bad behavior. So... No man's religion. And I, and I just give you a funny story about man's religion. Uh, Heather and I were married in this church almost 30 years ago. At that time, not based in Scripture, the church had the belief, and I mean, I'm talking about like they, they, they put it out there, that dancing was a sin. And so we could not have at our reception dancing. Not even, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, whatever year that movie came out, Dirty Dancing. I and mean, we're talking about, like, we couldn't even have nice, sweet wedding dancing. Um, like, but, but we do that. You know, the church made a decision not based in Scripture. And, and we see this time and again. There's, there's, I mean, there's lists of things I can do. I, I, I had a friend of mine. He, um, he got called to pastor a church. And, you know, sometimes there's just questions you don't think you have to ask. And he got called to pastor church, and on the first Sunday, he and his wife showed up to church. He was in a suit. His wife was in a pantsuit. And about five seconds in the door, he realized this was a church that believed it was a sin for women to wear pants. And I mean, a heck of a time to figure that out. But, but again, he had to get this church through. Like, that is, that's not in the Scripture, guys. You, you, can't, you can't tell people. And, and so, you know, those are some, I don't want to say silly examples, but those are some, but, but the point is, we as, our, the religion of man does not get to override the word of God. So, another, another thing it has authority over, and I, know, I think there's two different things you can put here, which they may be a distinction without a difference, but in my mind it's different. Uh, scripture has authority over our opinions or our preferences. Scripture has authority over our opinions or preferences. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, 2 through 4 says this. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, 
Okay, that's too many R's. (laughs) Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but they will have itching ears that they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know, when um, when I was uh, a youth pastor years and years and years ago, there was a lady in our church that used to say, I mean, I, mean, I swear she started every sentence with, uh, I know the Bible says, but I don't think God would. And like, so she would quickly turn it from, well, I know the Bible says, and then she would turn it into, but my opinion, my preference is that, that that's not, that's not right. There was a video that came out on YouTube uh, a while back, and they were comparing two different types of Christians. And what's interesting is I think the people who made the video, they had a point they were going to try to make, and they were going to try to get this one side of uh, Christians who held more to traditional Christianity, and they were going to try to make them look as stodgy and and uncool. And then they had these more hip progressive type Christians over here that they were going to try to make, uh, like, see how, how much sweeter they are, whatever. But what really came out of this video is regardless of what question they asked, and there were three people on one side, three people on the other side, regardless of what question they asked, the three people on this side they would always answer with, in Genesis, it says this. In Matthew, Jesus said this. In you know, Corinthians, Paul said this. Every one of their answers was based in Scripture. This group over here, every sentence always started with, well, I feel, or I know somebody who, or I just don't think. And we need to understand there are parts of Scripture that are going to make us uncomfortable. There are going to be parts of Scripture we don't like. I think, I forget what David was preaching on, but one time he was talking about something. It was one of those hard pieces of Scripture. And David was kind of like, we don't need to back off what it's saying here. You know, we don't need to tone this down for people. We're not called to be God's PR person. And so there's going to be times the Word's going to make you and I uncomfortable. There's going to be times the Word is hard. It's going to, the Word's going to push us out of our comfort zone. The Word's going to expect us to do things we don't want to do, to forgive people we don't want to forgive, to be kind to people we don't want to be kind to, to hang out with people we don't want to hang out with, to, to spend money in ways we don't want to spend it, to not spend money in ways we don't want to spend it, to, to take a job we don't want to take, to not take a job we do want to take, you know, to, to, you know, swallow our pride here, to humble ourselves here. There's going to be time and time and thing and thing. The Scripture has authority over our opinions and our preferences. One other place in your third blank here, the Scripture has authority over our convictions. Romans 14, 1 through 6 tells us this, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For the Lord is able to make him stand." 
One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats eats in honor of the Lord. And since he gives thanks, while the one who abstains abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Okay? We've got to be very careful to understand the Scripture trumps our convictions. You know, I'll go, I'll go back to the example of apparently the leaders of Agape 30, year old, 30 years ago had a conviction that um, dancing was a sin. But the Scripture doesn't hold that. So, I mean, I guess, you know, they had full authority to say, well, we're not going to let dancing happen here. But if they took it to the point of, well, if people dance, like if you, if you have your wedding here and then go somewhere else and you're dancing, it's a sin, then they were stepping out of line. I'll give you an example from my own personal life about a conviction that I have. Years ago, Netflix made a decision that um, crossed the line for me. Now look, I think all streaming services have their, their own issues, but the, but the particular thing about Netflix crossed a line that I have, I have no tolerance for. And so I immediately got rid of Netflix even though it had uh, the second best kids educational TV show ever made. Uh, thankfully, I can now watch that on YouTube. I mean, my kids can watch that on YouTube. But I have a very strong conviction. Like there, 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 man, there are several shows that are on Netflix right now that are only available on Netflix that I, I would love to talk myself into getting a Netflix subscription just so I can watch those shows. I'm like, Lord, if they just offer a free trial for a week and I just binge everything, is that okay? But, but Netflix doesn't offer free trials. But the point is, for me, it would be a sin for me to watch Netflix because of my conviction. But like, I know several of y'all who have Netflix subscriptions, while I would prefer y'all not to have them, at no point do I think, well, golly, that person's a sinner because they, they have Netflix. But, but, but that's the thing. We've got to weigh what the Word of God is is more weighty than conviction. So I can have a conviction about something, but if it's not, if I can't, if it's not in the Word of God, then I don't have the authority to put my conviction on any of you guys. So let's look at this last thing. Um, we've talked about the trustworthiness and errantness of Scripture. We've talked about the power of Scripture. Let's talk about the, the authority. Um, I'm sorry. I totally skipped back like, 15 minutes of my sermon, please apologize to me. It's okay. Um, I want to say this. If there is a conflict between authorities, Scripture always wins. It doesn't matter what the authority is. Acts 5, 27. Well, actually, let's take a step back. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not some authority, not certain authority, not limited authority, Jesus has all authority. Acts 5.27, And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you are, here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Again, if there is ever a conflict between authority, Scripture always wins. Let me give you a couple of examples. Let's look at, 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 at teachers like 
like teachers of the word, preachers, evangelists, people you might watch on, on YouTube. In Acts, the Bereans in verse in chapter 17, verses 10 through 11, were commended because the brothers immediately sent for Paul and Silas uh, to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. When, when someone is teaching you, if they start sharing opinions or whatever, and you go to the scripture, and the scripture doesn't line up with what's being said, the scripture has the authority. Uh, I think one place that has really hurt uh, American Christianity, maybe this place and other places in the world, but I haven't been there. Um, but one thing is, is I think there are so many people that heard a pastor say something once upon a time when they were eight, and now they're 42, and they're quoting it. They have no idea where it's in the scripture, but they just remember, you know, Pastor Billy Bob, when I was eight, said this thing. And I'm going to be honest with you, I can't tell you the number of times I have thought on something that Pastor Billy Bob, I don't really know one, figured that was the safest name to use, that Pastor Billy Bob has said when I was younger that when I go back to try to find it, because I just pops in my mind, I'm like, oh, I don't know where Billy Bob got that, but it wasn't Scripture. Scripture always has authority. I'll give you another example. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. I will say this, though, a caveat. If you are going to correct a teacher... Make sure you're correcting them from Scripture. And I'll give you an example. Uh, when I was a youth minister once upon a time, uh, I had a parent come up to me very angrily after church. She pulls me aside. And what I'm about to tell you is the whole truth, nothing but the truth. Nothing is exaggerated for effect. She says to me, and she had a 15, 16-year-old daughter. She said to me, Hey, have you been teaching my daughter that it's a sin to lie. And I said, as a matter of fact, that has come up. And she goes, well, I want to tell you something. Uh, she asked me if she could do something, and I didn't want her to do it, and so I made up a story about um, why she couldn't do it, and then she called me out for lying to her. Now, what I thought to myself is, you're the mama, you should have just told her no. I don't even know why we went to this whole having to lie about it. Just go, no. But she goes... I don't know why you're telling my daughter to send a lie. We're not Catholic. Don't know what that means. But, but my point is, is I got rebuked for sharing scripture by some just weird, we're not Catholic statement. I'll give you another example. You know, Romans is very clear that we're to obey the government. Uh, I was listening to this pastor share a story. He was in uh, California. And he was talking about when the pandemic happened, their church was trying to do everything that they could to honor what their government was asking them to do. And so, like, it started off and it was like, hey, uh, you can only have this many people in a building this size. And so they, they moved their services outside so that people could spread way out. And, and then, like, various things happened, like three or four different things the, 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 the city council kept coming to him and go, well, you can't do this because, and they kept working around. And then some of y'all may remember when this hit the news. Um, and one of the, 
requirements that a lot of governments were, uh, localities, maybe even some states were trying to put us like, well, you can go to church, but you just can't worship because the singing is going to spread. And so this happened at their church and they had, they had tried three or four different times to accommodate. But then the pastor said at that point, when they told us we couldn't worship the Lord, at that point, there was no workaround. We had to choose. We're called in the scripture to worship the Lord and our government. And we said, sorry, guys, hey, we have obeyed up to this point because that is what we're called to do. But we are going to worship the Lord regardless of what they say. So how does this apply to agape? I kind of told you one of the ways it applies to the elders is when we wrote these core values, everything was based in scripture. And I can, can tell you some of the conversations got interesting because there were some times we talked about things and somebody would go, ah, well, I think, I think we can't defend that necessarily in scripture. That's probably more of a preference. And so where's the line here on these things? We need to make sure. Um, if you'll notice when whoever is teaching up here, and it's usually David, but regardless of who's teaching up here, when we do a handout, like almost every point always has scripture on it. Because there's an understanding that, that one of the weights of being in the pulpit is you are going to teach from the Scripture. We're not going to teach from opinions or preferences or desires or anything like that, but it needs to be based in the Scripture. But, but how does, what's the application at agape? So if we believe that Scripture is inerrant and that Scripture is a powerful and authoritative, then, let me take you back to the verse that Eric read for us. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. So, if we believe that Scripture is inerrant, that it is powerful and is authoritative, then it will shape our doctrine. That's where it talks about teaching. Our good doctrine comes from realizing that all Scripture is God-breathed and one thing is good for us to say in our good doctrine. It will correct our incorrect beliefs. That's reproof. It will correct our incorrect behavior. That's correction. And it will train us in living in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. And that's training in godly living. So if we believe that the word is authoritative, it's inerrant, and it's powerful, it's going to shape what we believe. It's going to shape what we believe is inaccurate. It is going to shape how we behave. It's going to shape what we refrain from. And we're going to see that it results in us being complete. We're going to see that, as we said in Colossians, it's going to result in us growing in the knowledge of God and growing in endurance and growing in patience and growing in walking in a manner that's worthy of the Lord. So as we get ready to close, I have two questions for us. And actually, now that I look at it, it's, it's two questions with lots of sub-questions. But I have two questions for us. Do we believe that this is God's Word, that the, the Bible we hold, whether it's on our phone, on our tablets, it's in our leather-bound, paperback, hardcover, whatever format we have it, do we believe that these are the words of God? 
And if we believe these are the words of God, do we believe they are inerrant? They are powerful and they are authoritative. If we answer yes, do we live like it? Do we consume the word of God like we believe it's authoritative? Do we consume the word of God like we believe it's inherent? Inerrant? Do we, do we consume the word of God like we believe it's powerful? Does it set our doctrine? Does it inform our lifestyle? Does it inform our attitudes? Is it transforming us?